Catholic Connection is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Welcome to Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio, keeping you connected to your faith and your world. Teresa tackles the issues of faith and culture, the pro-life message, and media awareness. And now, here's Teresa Tamio. And it's a Tuesday morning. Hope your Tuesday is going well. This is the Memorial of the Passion of St. John the Baptist, and Steve Ray will be joining us to wrap up a busy Tuesday to talk just about that. He is an author. He is a convert to Catholicism. And he is a prominent speaker and pilgrimage leader and has been to, of course, the Holy Land, I believe, uh, close to or more than 200 times. So very familiar with the life and the location of all the things that happened to John the Baptist. Pray for us. But we'll talk about that with Steve in great detail. And he'll also have information on his website, catholicconvert.com. He has a ton of blogs and tons of stuff about what we're discussing today. So I hope you can check that out, catholicconvert.com. Right after the news and the weather, we are going to be joined by Dr. Meg Meeker. Her website is meekerparenting.com. And as you know, Dr. Meeker does great work, and she's out there on the front lines addressing so many issues that address children. And she was one of the first many, many years ago, and I met her, gosh, probably over 20 years ago. She's from Michigan, my home state. And she was doing a lot of work with raising awareness about the over-sexualization of teens And she actually did a book, her first book was called Epidemic, and it was all about how so many teens, regardless of where they were from, their neighborhoods, their status, their family status, they were all struggling with the same things. And that was over 20 years ago, and it's much worse today, but she continues her work to speak honestly about the truth of who we are, made in the image and likeness of God, and helping young people and their families understand this. And so she has a lot of really good information about what's going on with this transgender ideology that's being pushed so strongly here in the U.S., What I want to discuss with Meg is something that she's been discussing for a while in terms of what these young people really need, or anyone needs, when they're struggling with something like gender dysphoria, is first of all, you have to sit down and talk about it. What's going on? Why is it going on? So you can get to the bottom of it. Is it really a dysphoria, or is there something else that's triggering this? But now what we're seeing here in the U.S. is they're they're pushing forward so quickly We're hearing more and more stories from those young people, especially in the hearing back on July 27th, I believe it was, in the House, the U.S. House, where a lot of these young people were saying they were very quickly pressured into making life-altering and mutilating decisions that now have them as lifelong patients in so many ways. And so Meg will be along to join us as we look what's happening in Europe. Now, you've got some of the most progressive locations in the world that are backing away, either restricting entirely or at least thinking about changing their guidelines. And while they're changing their guidelines, they're operating differently. They're offering, oh, what a concept, therapy, as opposed to puberty blockers in transition. So we'll talk with Dr. Meg about this at 15 minutes past the hour. Then, as I mentioned, Steve Ray will be joining us to wrap up this busy Tuesday morning, taking a look at our feast day today surrounding St. John the Baptist. A lot of concern and with good reason, of course, being raised about this storm down in Florida. And it is going to be a full-on hurricane that is going to predominantly hit the west coast of Florida, especially in the Tampa area. We'll have much more in the news on this. But here's what the National Weather Service says. Idelia is predicted to rapidly strengthen in the next day or so over the eastern Gulf of Mexico, becoming a major hurricane by later today and reaching the Gulf Coast of Florida tomorrow. 
storm is expected to produce life-threatening surges. I've heard as high as 12 feet. Can you imagine that? In addition to other hurricane conditions along parts of the Florida Gulf Coast, which could also result in flash flooding from this storm. So they are getting out the warnings and reminding folks to not play with this thing. It's very, very serious. And we'll have a complete report coming up in the news. So that is the weather forecast, most of the focus being on the storm in Florida. Let's get into the news right now because it's a busy Tuesday. Four minutes past the hour. You are listening to EWTN. Let's begin. Well, for more details on this very important story, check out CatholicNewsAgency.com. The story describes 14 states and several pro-life groups joining a major lawsuit in New York's Westchester County, urging the Supreme Court of the U.S. to overrule measures restricting pro-life or free speech near abortion clinics across the country. The states include Kentucky, Alabama, Arkansas, Idaho, Iowa, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and West Virginia. These states all signing onto an amicus brief in support of pro-lifers' free speech. According to the state's briefs, the, law has dis- the laws have dire consequences by allowing the government to cut off speech on a hotly contested moral and political issue outside of an abortion facility where a pregnant woman makes a life-altering decision for both herself and her child. Meanwhile, several legal experts, as well as pro-life organizations, including pregnancy resource centers, also filing briefs. In all, 18 different briefs are filed in support of pro-life free speech. The University of North Carolina confirms one faculty member was killed after a shooting on campus Monday. School officials making that announcement. This loss is devastating, and uh, the shooting damages the trust and safety that we so often take for granted uh, in our campus community. Police say they have a suspect in custody, but so far no name has been released, nor have they given any possible charges. Earlier reports indicated the shooter was a grad student. Classes canceled today, the shooting taking place in a laboratory, triggering a three-hour lockdown. As we mentioned in the weather forecast just a few moments ago, Natalie Rodriguez tells us time is running out for millions in Florida ahead of what is expected to be a major hurricane. Idalia is a Category 1 hurricane this Tuesday morning. The National Hurricane Center warning that the storm could be a Category 3 by the time it reaches Florida tomorrow. Kevin Guthrie, Executive Director of the Florida Division of Emergency Management, warns up to 12 feet of storm surge could prove to be the biggest threat in parts of the Gulf. That is going to move furniture in your house. That is going to move your vehicle. You do not want to be in your home when that stuff is being moved around. It could pin you against the wall. You can drown. You could die from blood force trauma. Power companies are bracing. Duke Energy has 4,500 workers from the Midwest on their way to Florida. Crews from Florida Power and Light are also standing by. Meanwhile, Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis says resources are indeed in place as a tropical storm marches toward the state. We have activated the full 5,500 National Guardsmen available in our state to respond to the storm. Uh, They have access to a lot of different assets, both on the ground and in the air. DeSantis noting that officials are coordinating again with utility companies in an effort to quickly respond to any potential power outages. Evacuation orders are also in place again for several counties in the coastal areas. Idalia is expected to strengthen into a hurricane very soon and make landfall again by early tomorrow morning. It currently has sustained winds at or above 70 miles per hour. Officials in Hawaii say the death toll in the Haina wildfires remains at 115. Three more victims' names were publicly released over the weekend. Hundreds of people remain missing or unaccounted for as the search for victims is winding down. 
Catholic Vote has this story, a coalition of more than 1,600 scientists releasing a major declaration entitled, There is no climate emergency. They're denouncing what they say is politically driven narratives about imminent climate crises. They say scientists should openly address uncertainties and exaggerations in their predictions of global warming, while politicians should dispassionately also count the real costs as well as the imagined benefits of their policy measures. Yet criticizing the left's climate science, a declaration also said to believe the outcome of a climate model is to believe what the model makers have put in. They add that climate science has now degenerated into a discussion based on beliefs and not on sound self-critical science. In the future, climate research must give significantly more emphasis to empirical science. And they added those who collaborated on the project said there is no statistical evidence to prove global warming is intensifying hurricanes, floods, and such like natural disasters or making them more frequent. Now, despite the general consensus that the fires in Maui were started by downed power lines, the Hawaii governor, Josh Green, was quick to blame the fires on global warming, and the Biden administration made climate change a focal point of its policy initiatives from the outset, issuing an executive order in 2021 prioritizing actions to counteract the alleged climate crisis. Lisa Taylor tells us attorneys for the suspect in the murders of four University of Idaho students are trying to get cameras out of the courtroom. Brian Koberger's attorneys filed a motion to have the cameras removed because the operator hasn't followed the judge's directions to keep wide shots. There have been multiple close-up shots of Koberger, which the judge noted. Koberger's attorneys want cameras banned from all future proceedings. The judge has not ruled on the motion. And Scott Pringle tells us protests are continuing on Staten Island in New York over the placement of asylum seekers. Another protest outside the St. John Villa Academy on Staten Island. On Monday night, a few hundred people gathered outside the shuttered school. I'm hoping that they they put them elsewhere, not in the middle of a residential area. Migrants started being placed at the academy last week, but no more are allowed to come until a lawsuit is heard next week. Staten Island residents and politicians are seeking to stop the migrants from being placed there. And it's not just big cities. Retail theft has become a problem, apparently, all across the country. And it affects everyone from chains to the mom and pop stores. It's actually been an issue for several years, and we've seen it grow through the growth of inflation. That's Annie Spillman with the Federation of Independent Business, who says their members cannot afford security guards. They want police to get more support so they can stop the organized theft rings. Dollar Tree, meanwhile, says it's either going to lock certain products up or stop selling them altogether due to high theft. The company's CEO said on a call with Wall Street analysts that the issue is just getting to be, well, out of control. And the search is on for suspects after a TV news crew was robbed at gunpoint in Chicago's West Town neighborhood. The reporter and photographer for Univision Chicago reporting yesterday morning about a recent string of armed robberies when three men wearing ski masks exited two cars and approached them displaying firearms. Authorities say they took items from the victim's SUV and drove off. No injuries were reported. Nordstrom is closing its San Francisco store after 35 years. A retailer saying the dynamics of downtown San Francisco's market changed dramatically over the past several years and has impacted customer foot traffic to the store. The shopping mall operator Westfield said foot traffic has dropped from 9.7 million visits in 2019 to 5.6 last year. Officials say more than 39 retail stores have closed in the city's Union Square since 2020. 
Mark Mayfield tells us the Department of Transportation is hitting American Airlines with the largest ever fine for keeping passengers waiting on the tarmac. The airline is facing an over $4 million fine for long delays with passengers on board airplanes for 43 different flights affecting more than 5,800 passengers. That's between 2018 and 2021. The longest delay involved passengers on board a plane in Texas in August of 2020 for just over six hours after being diverted due to severe weather. Those stuck in traffic may wonder just how much commuting to work actually costs them. Well, the Chamber of Commerce, and this is out of San Diego, California, that issued this report, aimed to answer this very question and took the average commute time for workers in 170 of the most populous cities in the country. Then they multiplied the time by the mean wage per minute pay rate. This gave them the average cost of commute per year. San Francisco had the costliest commute at just over $12,500 per year. New York City ranked fifth in the nation with almost $11,000 per year. And finally, in our news segment, at about 12 minutes past the hour on a Tuesday morning, it is August 29, 2023. Lucinda Kay explains a baby giraffe who looks like no other has joined us. This baby giraffe is a baby giraffe without spots. Veterinarians believe she is the only solid-colored giraffe on the planet. This little girl is already six feet tall. She's about a month old, and she needs a name. You can help choose. You can spot this unspotted sweetie on Facebook. The Bright's Zoo in Tennessee posted pics. You can vote on her name until Labor Day. There are four options, all in Swahili. Maybe it's too obvious, but I'd call her Doa. That's Swahili for spot. It is a Tuesday morning. Thanks for tuning in to EWTN. This program, Catholic Connection, is co-produced by Ave Maria Radio and EWTN. Check us out online, EWTN.com, and, of course, AveMariaRadio.net. Dr. Meg Meeker, Meg Meeker Parenting, actually MeekerParenting.com is her website. She is up next to talk about how things are changing quickly in Europe where they're going back to actual therapy as opposed to dangerous puberty blockers and mutilating surgeries, as opposed to what's happening here in the U.S. We'll get her thoughts and insights as an MD and a pediatrician, a mom, a grandmom, and, of course, a sister in the Lord. More of that coming up next. Stay tuned. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I want you to have such confidence in the Lord that you'll find such hope and see the beauty of the Lord, the majesty of God. What did our Lord say, huh? If your sins are as scarlet, oh, what? What's going to happen? They shall be made white as snow. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. People ask how they can care for older family members who can't fully care for themselves. One answer is Visiting Angels, America's choice in senior home care. Visiting Angels assists adults nationwide with 600 locations to continue living at home and not have to move into a nursing home. Their caregivers provide assistance in hygiene, meals, and lighthouse work. Services are provided up to 24 hours per day, and you can select your caregiver before service begins. More information, including franchise opportunities, is on the web at visitingangels.com. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. 
You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. This came out just last week. Denmark joins a list of countries that have sharply restricted youth gender transitions. We talked about this as well in my Fact Check Friday, along with a couple of other stories. A major medical journal, the Journal of the Danish Medical Association, confirming there has been a marked shift in the country's approach to caring for youth with gender dysphoria. Most youth referred to the centralized gender clinic no longer get a prescription for puberty blockers, hormones, or surgery. Instead, they receive therapeutic counseling and support. What a concept. To comment on this is something that she has always said is needed, not puberty blockers or, God forbid, dangerous surgery, but to sit down and to find out what's really going on with these folks who say they are struggling with possible gender dysphoria. Meg, good morning. Thanks for joining us. So here we are in Europe. We have a number of very progressive places, including Denmark. Uh, It happened in Norway, also Sweden. And if they're not all out banning transgender surgeries and puberty blockers. They are certainly dialing it back and going back to what's really needed. And this is real good counseling and support. So what was your reaction when you saw this, this statement that I sent you from Denmark? Well, I was thrilled because I thought, finally, I knew that studies like this were going to come. It was just a matter of time. And here's why, because a lot of the research quote-unquote research that we have regarding uh, transitioning youth is not long-term. If you look at a lot of the studies, they follow the kids one year, two years after transition, and that's it. That's not um, a long-term study. What we needed to do was look at people 10 years out, 20 years out. What do they feel like when they're 30 and 40? And we just didn't have that data. And so finally somebody said wait a minute we need to look at how they're feeling a few years after and of course what they found is that a number of these people were wanting to go back to their um original gender uh you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry i get confused with the language right their yeah. biological gender right and um so this is really startling in other words it shows that through our our treatment of this with puberty blockers and or surgery, we were actually harming a lot of these patients and kids. So where is this going? Because in the United States, we are just, at least it seems to be, pushing forward like 150,000%. There doesn't seem to be any pullback at all. Yeah, yet. I think we will see pullback because a huge part of this um, the surge that we see in kids who are wanting to transition is a fad. And one of the the best things about the study is that they talk, too, about social pressure, and they talk about the fact that it is sort of a monkey-see-monkey-do, and uh, particularly on girls, because a lot of these are girls who want to transition. We have not 
been bold enough to do that in the United States, to say that there are clusters of kids who are wanting to transition. And uh, a medical problem doesn't cluster unless it's an infection, like Lyme disease or so forth. If you have um, any other regular problem, you know, lupus or... Um, you know, connective tissue disease, anything, it doesn't cluster. It's just sort of uh, random. And when you see a cluster like this, particularly in a psychologically-based issue, you have to realize that there's some peer pressure on it. So I'm glad they at least addressed that as well. They're talking about a red flag being the high rate, and they have a whole summary here in this in this article that I share with you, of psychiatric comorbidities in currently presenting cases. The authors note that unlike the Netherlands, where gender dysphoric youth reportedly have a relatively low rate of psychiatric comorbidities, in Denmark and other countries, there's a much greater proportion of gender dysphoric youth with comorbidities uh, and mental illnesses, depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, self-harming, autism spectrum disorder, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So this is coming up over and over again in these countries that are scaling back, realizing that, again, there are already existing situations that may be sparking this or directly connected to it, right? Exactly. And, you know, that's happening in the United States, but nobody's talking about it or reporting on it. The assumption is if kids come in with depression, anxiety, and so forth, it's caused by the gender dysphoria. Um, I disagree. I believe that the gender confusion dysphoria is caused by the depression and anxiety, and kids are taught that if you have these feelings along with your depression, these feelings of gender dysphoria, that's the root cause. And if you correct that, then the depression, anxiety will go away. That's not true. And this is one of the things that really disturbs me about this intervention, uh, is that it doesn't get to the root of the problem. And it leads kids to believe that if you undergo puberty suppression, um, then you will your depression will go away. And it doesn't long term. Maybe kids feel better for a year because, because they think, oh, finally, I have the answer and this is going to work. And they feel a momentary elation. But after a while, they realize this isn't the cause. This isn't the cause of depression. And the real tragedy is they don't get the root cause of their depression treated. They're given a quick answer, slapped on a very serious problem that can lead to bigger problems down the road, as we know. Talking with Dr. Meg Meeker, meekerparenting.com, and she's an expert on this topic as a pediatrician. And I'm sure you're seeing, because of all this social media influence and the pressure that you just discussed, probably more patients that are, that are questioning when they come to you or families as well. Oh, cool. uh, absolutely. And what I'm intrigued by is kids will question it um, with a very sort of nonchalant tone. They'll come in and they'll say, well, I'm bisexual or I have gender dysphoria. You know, I think I've had it for a number of years, but now I know I really want to be a boy and I'm 13. What? You know, this is not a nonchalant issue. This is a serious issue and I don't believe kids take it seriously and unfortunately when they come home and say this kind of thing to their parents progressive parents will say oh yep okay let's jump on it let's get you help 
because that's what you need right now. No, 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 no. Um, and so kids who are really ill with a problem have symptoms over and over and over, and they're disruptive, they're life-altering, um, they're unmistakable. You know, somebody with lupus, for instance, has a rash that appears over and over and over, and, you know, a, a very specific symptoms. Kids aren't having these because it's very hard. The diagnosis of gender dysphoria is very vague. I want to point out another thing. You know, we are seeing um, historically a, a historic surge in the amount of depression anxiety that, we're, that we have in kids over the past five or eight years. Right. Guess what else has surged? Gender dysphoria over the past five or ten years. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a cause and effect, but that's peculiar to me. If you had just gender dysphoria as the problem, you wouldn't see the parallel with depression and anxiety. Just because there's a parallel does not mean it's cause and effect. And that's one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of progressive parents, teachers, and doctors are making. And um, it's, having, it's going to have devastating effects on these kids because this will fade out and clinics will close because America is going to catch up to understanding the, re- the uh, research that's going on in other countries. And there's going to be a major oops um, uh, time that's going to come in American medicine. It's still crazy out there. You have people like, we'll talk about this when we come back. Uh, a fellow Michigander, Alice Cooper, is out there talking about the fact that this is a fad, although he's not a medical expert like you. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's out there in the culture and he sees things. He's been around for a while. And he says he's concerned about this fad and saying a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. And this is out of control that a young person can make these kinds of decisions. And then the cosmetic company with whom he's had a contract all of a sudden says, nope, we don't like Alice Cooper anymore. This is what happens here in the U.S. More with Meg coming up. Father Benedict Groeschel. Oh, I love reverence. Wherever I go in the world, I usually go to visit the religious buildings. And no matter what I see, I see reverence. Or I've been in temples and mosques where I saw more reverence and awe of God than I see in Christian churches, even sometimes in Catholic churches. Oh yes, let me say it. When I was a boy, Catholics were much more reverent and respectful in church. You never, ever spoke in church. I was a young priest. A man had a heart attack at the beginning of Mass. I stopped the Mass. We prayed for the man while the police were coming, the ambulance. They removed him from the church. He didn't die. Not one word was spoken. The police officers and the ambulance attendants who came whispered, respect. I wish it were true today. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. An advanced care planning document, or ACP, is one kind of advanced directive, providing a written statement of a person's desired medical treatments in the future. A recent study titled, What's Wrong with Advanced Care Planning?, concluded that there is a gap between hypothetical scenarios and real-world decision-making. Another study found that 80% of emergency room physicians misinterpreted an ACP as a do-not-resuscitate order. Another issue is that any disagreement between medical professionals and the patient's healthcare agent 
regarding specific ACP language may undermine the patient's ultimate wishes. Your best bet is never to sign an advanced care planning document, such as a pulse form when admitted to a hospital. And make sure your healthcare durable power of attorney has a provision which invalidates any previously signed ACP. This medical moment brought to you by MyLifeAngels.com. Dr. Meg Meeker joining us. Her website is great, MeekerParenting.com. I'll have her back on soon because she has a, a new program available regarding discipline. And Meg, I think this being that you're talking a lot about guidelines and boundaries for kids and you have this new uh, event and program coming up on, on discipline, I think we were talking during the break that even if parents, let's say they have a more progressive attitude and they tend to, to be very liberal in, in their thought process and, and what they support and what they don't support, you think that most parents, regardless of where they are, if a young person in high school or lower, maybe in grade school, middle school, came to them and said, you know what, mom, I feel really strongly that I can educate myself and I'm going to be fine. I'm going to just stay home and read what I want, stay up all hours of the night because I feel this is important or I feel I need to just eat chocolate because this is where I, you know, um, chocolate is my muse or this is my muse or that's my muse and I'm, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I would think that no matter how liberal the parents are, they would say, sorry, no, you have to have some restrictions. You've got to get up. You have to go to school. Of course, if they have to go to school or else be, parents could be arrested for truancy. But right. you know what I'm saying? In, in terms of, you know, when you come down to it, basically, I think in most cases, they would understand that the kids can't be, be, be running things. And yet in this area, below the belt stuff, all bets are off, whether it's abortion, whether it's birth control. And now, of course, this new phase of this transgender ideology going on you know you're absolutely right and i think that what happens if you think about it, it's all about setting boundaries with kids and that's why i wrote my simple discipline that works discipline is not a, a nasty thing it's about setting boundaries for your kids on their behavior because they can't make decisions yet because they don't understand cognitively they literally can't wrap their mind around the fact that if I do A, um, if I um, act on something today, it is going to have a consequence B in six months, six years, one year. They literally can't understand that. We can understand that. And that's why we as adults need to intervene and say, no, you can't go past this line. It's not going to work for you. And Interestingly, we very selectively put up boundaries in different areas like school, chocolate, staying up all night. Um, Drinking too much soda, different types of foods kids exactly. get. When they go to the cafeteria, there's all, the, there's all these, this push by the government to make sure kids are not eating junk all day long. Cigarettes. Right. Cigarettes. Alcohol. Cigarettes. Yeah. Alcohol. You know, cigarettes. And, and the, the truth of the matter is, if you said a 14-year-old could smoke cigarettes for five years and then stop, the truth is their lungs would regenerate, they'd be okay. They would be healthier long-term than transitioning a child in youth. And yet look how adamant we are about uh, cigarette smoking, and we demonize people who smoke. They're horrible, horrible people. Shouldn't, we shouldn't even talk to them or associate with them. And yet when it comes to something very, very serious, like transitioning a child, we shrug our shoulders and go, well, you know, that's a boundary that we need to lift because kids really know. 
And we have been duped. Healthy parents have been duped into believing that this is a deeply emotional, psychological problem that our kids are having, that if we don't respond in, quote, gender-affirming ways, which I always think, well, which gender are you affirming? Well, you know, that's just like pro-choice and reproductive health. It's just semantics that they put out there because they don't want to talk about mutilating surgeries and dangerous puberty exactly. blockers. And, you know, they, they, want, they have to come up with a, the new language for it, right? Absolutely. And you wisely brought up the point of um, the financial gain. It's mm-hmm. a big moneymaker. Um, and, I, and I don't easily say that um, as a physician, but, but there's a lot to be gained um, by those who are not transitioning, um, you know, money, political clout, um, sort of a bolstering of their progressive mentality and feeling, you know, they're right, and they can look at others and go, see, 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 we get it, you don't. Um, it's, it, it, it's, it's really sickening, honestly, because it's so cruel. It's abs- and we're going to have to answer to this, to God yeah. one day, and um, God have mercy on us. That's all I can say. Yeah, it just, it's just, where is this all, all of a sudden it just skyrocketed in like the last five to ten years. Yeah. First, the whole thing about so-called same-sex marriage, which I think opened Pandora's box. And now, every time we turn around, this ideology is, is everywhere. And the first time... There was one of those um, drag queen shows at a library. That was a big story. Now they're like happening all over the place. Like it's just a, it's just something that happens, you know. That's what you do on the weekend or at night. You, know, you go to one of these drag queen story hours. Things that we never thought would be acceptable and fine. We've been desensitized. It's like that frog in, in, in the water on the stove. You turn the heat up slowly, right? Yes. You know, we don't accept it. We're forced to accept it. And then we embrace it. And then we promote it. You know, and and I think that's where we get psychologically manipulated. I'm convinced that over 90% of the parents in America do not want this, but they're bullied into silence. And what I'm saying is people, please don't be bullied into silence. silence. We have all the great research to show medically this is not okay for kids. And we've got to at least be be able to stand on the medical science and say, "Uh uh-uh, This isn't a religious or a moral issue. This is a medical issue. It's causing kids harm. Um, And here's the evidence. Um, And there's also a great book that just came out, Miriam Grossman. Oh, I love her. She's amazing. She's She's fabulous. Yeah. She's fabulous. And she's a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist. Well, she's the one who came out and was was talking about, like you, right, the sexually transmitted diseases and the depression and the suicide, suicidal thoughts around, among young women in colleges. And she's she's counseling all these girls in college, and she's looking at them, and they've got everything together. They've got their degree, they have their scholarships, they exercise, they eat right, but they were yeah. being really sexually active, and that was the connection where she found to the depression. It's it's, it's fascinating in terms, and she's not coming at this at all from a religious perspective. Nope. No, no, she isn't. And interestingly enough, when she started off reporting this in the STD and so forth years ago, she felt pressured to be anonymous because she knew she was going to get a lot of pushback. Now, you know, that's um, changed 180 degrees, and she's right out there, and, uh, and she's very bold. And um, everybody needs to buy her book and read it so that you have... Um, evidence and you have data to show people, friends, teachers, pastors, anybody, that this is a really bad um, fad and it's a movement. And like you said, you know, we went from sort of 0.01 percent 
and the um, the the amount of kids showing up in these clinics, uh, in I think it skyrocketed four thousand percent in the U.S. and eight thousand percent in Denmark. Come on, yeah, that's not that's not a legitimate illness um, rearing its head, rearing its head. It's it's something else going on here. As I said, it's not a true blue medical illness that we didn't see for years and years and years, or that we misdiagnosed right. for many years, and right. it didn't come out uh, along with uh, you know a parallel rise in depression, anxiety. So that alone should sound an alarm for parents and teachers and physicians. Yeah, and and also if you look at what's happening in these extremely progressive countries, I mean, Europe has been much more liberal, of course, until recent years, and here in the United States. So I spent a lot of time over there, so I know. And now they are dialing back big time. Meg, always so informative and helpful to talk with you, Dr. Meg Meeker, meekerparenting.com. Check out her great work, her books, her radio shows, and all of her great advice on parents. We'll be right back with Steve Ray to talk about John the Baptist up next on Catholic Connection. Sixty seconds with Father Mitch Pacwa. This communion with Jesus and with one another, that being united to Him and abiding in Him, that is the indispensable condition for bearing fruit. That's why our Lord says, back in John fifteen verse five, "Apart from Me, you can do nothing." If you're not united to Christ, you're not going to do anything for Him. So, communion with Jesus, our Savior. Focusing on Him and getting to know Him and be known by Him. That is what makes it possible for us to bear fruit as Christians. And communion with others is the most magnificent fruit that the branches can give. That's one of the things that He's looking for from us. That we have a communion with one another. That we have a love and a concern. Does it mean we agree with one another? Not necessarily. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Miracles are miracles because they're different than regular daily life. A miracle is a reminder that something beyond nature can act within nature. Miracles are meant to open our eyes that more is always going on than just the normal humdrum of the daily life. Miracles are supposed to make us realize that our moral choices are impacting an invisible world that once in a while breaks through into our workaday world. The Blessed Mother predicted the miracle of the Son, and she made it clear that she was using it as proof of the truth of her message. In other words, when the sun stops dancing and you get back to church, to work, to home, remember what's at stake when you pray the rosary. Cresta in the afternoon, weekdays at 4 Eastern on EWTN Radio. so much for tuning in to Catholic Connection. Boy, time flies and you have great guests like Dr. Meg Meeker and our next guest, a regular here on Catholic Connection and many other EW Chan shows, our friend Steve Ray, fellow Michigander who's on his way to Israel, I think a week from uh, Friday. And today he's joining us because we have the Memorial of the Passion of St. John the Baptist. And Steve, 
I'm trying to remember when I was introducing the lineup in the first hour of the program this morning. Is it over 200 times to the Holy Land? Yes. Okay. Over right, 200, so. and we have led 100 groups. Praise so, God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we got and you two need... going in September. Yeah. We got two going in September. And by the way, we're talking about beheading of John the Baptist. If people want to see that in Jordan, we have only four seats left on the bus in February to see Jordan and Israel. So that wow. one sold out quick. So only wow. four seats left if you want to see the, the place where he was beheaded. We're going to do four days in Jordan and seven days in Israel. Yeah, well, I've been there with you. We did the part to Jordan, which was yeah. absolutely fantastic. That was 2000 and early 2019. All right, so walk us through this, because I think everyone is very familiar with the gospel regarding the gospel reading regarding the beheading of John the Baptist. It reveals so much, and I think there was an interesting reflection in Word Among Us this morning about the contrast before the first reading of living a, a good, selfless life, and then the gospel in terms of uh, how the main character in the gospel was not. So kind of walk us through what happened with John the Baptist, if you would. Well, John is a very unique character. And Jesus, of course, said that he was the greatest of anybody born of woman. And he was born to a, a high priest of the priestly line. I think that he was sent to the Essenes, to Qumran. That's what many people think, especially John Bergsma, who I have great respect for, done a, written a book on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and was probably educated down there by them, which would introduce him to the wilderness because Qumran is only two or three miles from where he was baptizing on the, along the Jordan River. And he was, um, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he is the first of the New Testament prophets. He's kind of got a foot in the Old Testament and a foot in the New Testament. He's straddling that period of time, just like Mary. Those two straddle between the Old and the New Testament because they're both born and lived in the Old Testament time, but they're very much part of the New Testament. And so he was um, called by God to go live in the wilderness. He is the new Elijah, by the way, and that, that's significant for people to know. The, old, the last prophet of the Old Testament was Malachi. He ends by saying that before the great and awesome day of the Lord, Elijah shall return. Now, the Jews didn't have any idea what that meant. What do you mean that Elijah is going to return? But when the angel appeared to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, he said he's going to come in the power and the strength and power of Elijah. And Jesus said John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come, whether you realize it or not. So it's not a physical Elijah coming back, but one who is like him. And this is interesting because Elijah in the Old Testament wore a camel hair robe and a leather belt. John the Baptist is the only other one that it says wore a camel hair robe and a leather belt which ties him in with him. So he is the Elijah who's to come. So when he's down there baptizing trees, that's so cool because he's baptizing at the same place that Elijah was taken up into heaven. Remember, we saw that yep. Elijah's mm -hmm. hill. I pointed that mm -hmm. out when you were there mm -hmm. with me. Right. And that's where Elijah went up into heaven. John the Baptist dresses like him. I'm sure he did that for a reason. And he's baptizing at the very place where John the Baptist went up. I think he did that for a reason. So when the Pharisees came, they said, wait a minute, you're dressed like Elijah. You look like him. You're preaching like him. He's supposed to come back. He went up from right here. Did you just come back down? And that is how John the Baptist was recognized. They said, are you the prophet? Are you him? And so John the Baptist was known 
and all of Jerusalem went down to hear him. This is 25 miles away. You know how far it is. It's 4,000 feet up from the Jordan Valley up to Jerusalem. But it said all of Jerusalem came down that 25 miles, 4,000 feet down to the valley to see and hear him. That means he was in the front page of the Jerusalem Post every single day. This guy, mm. everybody was going down to find out what was going on. But he also got entangled with the king, with Herod. Herod had an illicit marriage. He had married his brother's sister, Salome. And because of that, John the Baptist criticized him, and that's why John was beheaded. Yeah, it's just, and you know, I think there's so many of, of those scenes in, in the Gospels that were portrayed so powerfully to give us an illustration of what life was like that, and the way the people were in the movie, The Passion of the Christ. I keep having those images in my head all the time. Talking with Steve Ray, of course, Catholic convert, teacher and preacher and pilgrimage leader, and talking about John the Baptist this morning. So what do you think the, the most important lessons are from John? Well, I think that one of the things is, of course, is that he wasn't persecuted. He wasn't killed because he was preaching about Jesus. Just like today, you can go out and preach about Jesus. You're not going to be persecuted for it. You're just one idea among many. Why was he persecuted? Because he stuck up. He stood up for legitimate marriage right and conversion he, yeah mm -hmm. that's right and so he is speaking to the government about legitimate marriage this is why he was beheaded just think of what's going on in our culture today Teresa. what are what are we going to be persecuted for what are we already being persecuted for our view of human life and of marriage we don't we don't go for the lgbtq xyz whatever they are we hold that god created male and female and that one man and one woman are married for a lifetime and there are laws biblical and national that guard and protect that relationship john the baptist went right up to the king to herod and said you are violating god's laws for marriage you violated the laws you married incestuous in a sense you married your brother's sister and it's an illicit marriage that's what got john the baptist beheaded he is actually i think will become our patron saint in this area because he is a precursor not only of the lord coming back but he's also a precursor of the punish of the persecution for standing up for traditional marriage in human life and that's what we're going to be persecuted for. Well, it's interesting you should say that because if you look at the, the, the you know, uh, his wife who asked for the beheading, why did she do that? Why, why did she, you know, respond to her daughter who was, you know, said to, to, from Herod that she could be given anything, including half of his kingdom? Why would she go for the beheading of John the Baptist? Because he was reminding her of her own sin yes. and Herod of his own sin. And, people, and, th and this yes. is why so many people are being silenced because I think deep down, I think deep down there is there is that that struggle with the Holy Spirit. You either respond positively to the challenge, or you respond negatively because you want to silence it. And you think if you silence yep. that voice, you're not going to hear it anymore. And so you you reach out and try to silence it in so many different ways, right? People living in sin and holding the position against Christianity and Jesus Christ and what we hold to, there is an intense hatred. She had an intense hatred for John the Baptist because every day the headlines of the Jerusalem Post were condemning her for her marriage to this king. She had to get rid of him. What would it matter if she had the whole half the kingdom if her name is still being smeared in the newspaper every day and in the editorial? She's got to get rid of that guy. She's got to get rid of that prophet who's speaking against her, and that's the hatred. 
just a bitter hatred. And believe me, that people have that same bitter hatred for us, those of us in the pro-life movement and those of us in the legitimate family movement. They have that same intense hatred for us. They will never give in. They will go after us until they can get us beheaded, so to speak. But another thing, just on a lighter note of where this actually happened, it happened on the Jordan side at a fortress of Herod's called Macarius. Now, that's not told us in the Bible. We learned that from Josephus, Flavius Josephus, who was a Jewish writer who was writing a history of the time in the first century in a book he wrote called Antiquity of the Jews. And he explains where John was beheaded, and he also names the daughter Salome. He names her. That's where we learn her name. And this is in a, on a, a mountain that Herod cut the top of it off, and he built. We went a there, didn't we? I, I remember going we there. Did. We were we were walking yep. around, and we were up in the mountains. That was so cool. Yep, and it's uh, that's the place where he was beheaded. Now this would have been about a a week's walk, at least five to days to a seven days walk up to Galilee from here, because this is way down on the east side of the of the Dead Sea, and. Remember John, when he was in prison, he sent his disciples. He had disciples. We know two of them. Andrew and James were two of his disciples who began to follow Jesus then. But he said to them while he's in prison, Would, I want you to go up to Galilee and ask Jesus if he is the one. And then the question says, what do you mean if he's the one? Was John the Baptist doubting that Jesus was the Messiah? He saw the dove come down on him, land on him in bodily form at the Jordan River. He knew what the angel had said to his father and mother. He knew what the angel had said to Mary because they were relatives. Every time Mary went to Jerusalem for the feast days, she probably stayed with Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were relatives. They knew John. So why would he say, go and ask if he's the one? Some people say he was doubting. I agree with St. Francis de Sales. I think that he sent his disciples all the way to Galilee to ask Jesus because he knew Jesus would then tell them, yes, I'm the one, and they would start following Jesus. John said, I must decrease. Jesus must, must increase. increase. Yeah. This is the way he did it. He transitioned his disciples over to Jesus to become his disciples because when Jesus said, what does Isaiah say? The blind see, the cripple walk. This is me. I'm doing these things. Then they would leave John the Baptist, who's going to be killed anyway, and they'd begin to follow Jesus. I think that's why he sent them up to ask Jesus that question. You know, it's, it really is, I think, so important. Sometimes when we, and, and we were talking, and we gave, gave our testimony over the weekend at a date night we had at our parish, and we were talking about the, the reading, you know, this past weekend, and on this rock you shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And how you always take us up to Caesarea Philippi, and you describe why Jesus walked them up there, and the rock, and what that rock stood for, and what was there in his time, and what that meant. You, it, we really have to understand that when we see things in Scripture, and you say this all the time, Steve, that nothing is wasted. There, there is meaning when they say they walked up to that area or they went here or they went there, right? Yes, Jesus is a master storyteller, a master teacher. And you know as well as I do that when you have something to show or you're talking about something with a backdrop behind you, your words are much more impactful. If I'm going to talk about liberty and justice for all and freedom, where do I stand? On Manhattan Island with a Statue of Liberty behind me. That Statue of Liberty behind me says as much about my topic as my words are going to do. Jesus would always go to places like that up to Caesarea Philippi. There's the rock. He's going to make Peter the rock. There's the cave, the gates of hell. He says the gates of hell won't prevail against it. All of this stuff is right there in front of your eyes. That's why Jesus walked four or five days up there. 
the whole thing with John the Baptist too. John the Baptist and Jesus were ba- did the whole baptism right at the place where Elijah went up into heaven. Yeah. This, all of this stuff is so, if you understand the context, not just the literary context of the words, in the Bible, but if you understand the geographical context and the setting of it all, it makes everything so much more meaningful. This is why I love taking people to places like Macarius where John the Baptist went, because they see how far it was and where it all happened. Because once you understand the location, that's why we call the, the Holy Land the fifth gospel, gospel number five, because it opens up the door for the other four and makes everything come alive for people. The yeah. context is so important. Yeah, it absolutely is. So, okay, so you're leaving next week, and then how many trips coming up, Stephen? Is there any room on any of them? <laughs> we got four trips to Israel still this year. Wow. So we're going September 8th with a full bus. That, that group leaves, and then two buses come that's sold out, and those buses leave, and then a November trip comes, which is sold out, and then the Christmas trip, which we always do for families. We have a bus full of families. A family of seven just signed up this week. Seven Aww. people, families coming, and we're going. It's all for and kids come on that one, and they get to interact with each other. And the priests that are on that Christmas family trip say that the conversions are very powerful. He says, "Steve, we hear their confessions. I'm telling you, these pilgrimages have a, tr- a profound impact on these kids for conversion." Oh, they, so we yeah. have that trip coming. Now, though, I wanted to mention that in February. We're going to Jordan again and to Israel. So that, that's a longer trip, the one that you went on with us. And it's fantastic because yeah. Jordan is really the other half of the Holy Land. This is where John the Baptist was born, uh, where he was uh, ministering. This is where Elijah was born. We're going to go see Petra. And we only got four seats left on that one. So oh, you got to go. That's um, an amazing trip. I'm so glad we did. It made so much more sense, as you said, when we added that other end of the trip onto yeah, it. Steve, right. we got to run. Thank you so much. Safe travels, my friend. And hopefully we can catch up with you. Uh, when you're in Israel, and we can follow up on some of these wonderful pilgrimages and what people are saying about it. Steve Ray, CatholicConvert.com, talking to us today about St. John the Baptist. We'll be right back to wrap up a Tuesday and let you know what's coming up on a Wednesday. I think Joni is back with us tomorrow. She's been on vacation, but she'll join us tomorrow. A lot of news, of course, out of Rome. Never a dull moment. We'll be right back. The first annual Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage, sponsored by the Dominican Friars Foundation, will take place on Saturday, September 30th at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. This all-day event will feature conferences by Father Gregory Pine, resuscitation of the Rosary, a fervorino by Father Lawrence Liu, and Mass with Father James Brent as homilist. Join us for this day of prayer to Our Lady. For more information, visit rosarypilgrimage.org. That's rosarypilgrimage.org. If you're an optimistic Catholic, will you live longer? I'm Chuck Adica, and this is Journey Strong. My wife Susan and I recently lost a dear friend who almost made it to age 99. Varied studies suggest that we may have a better chance of living to near 100 if we are both emotionally aware and hold a positive attitude about life. Being optimistic is a Catholic thing, or it should be. We hold views that include man and God prevailing over darkness and evil, and all human life being highly valued and unique. All positive. But we need more than worldly optimism. We need true theological hope. The Catechism states, Hope is the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness, placing our trust in Christ's promises and relying not on our own strength, but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. Now that's hope. For more on this, look to the Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net.
People ask how they can care for older family members who can't fully care for themselves. One answer is Visiting Angels, America's choice in senior home care. Visiting Angels assists adults nationwide with 600 locations to continue living at home and not have to move into a nursing home. Their caregivers provide assistance in hygiene, meals, and light housework. Services are provided up to 24 hours per day, and you can select your caregiver before service begins. More information, including franchise opportunities, is on the web at visitingangels.com. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN. Appreciate it. Don't forget, if you're interested in any of the conversations we have here on this program, check it out at Catholic Connections Archive. Andrew does his best to get those up by midday. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and the archive section of any of our shows. Coming up tomorrow, we are going to be checking in again with Joan Lewis. She's been absent for a few weeks because she deserves a vacation, and that's where she was. She'll have all the latest news from Rome and much more tomorrow on Catholic Connection. Ciao, ciao. A domani. You've been listening to Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio. Catholic Connection is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our producer is Andrew Kruchek. For copies of this program or for more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-MariaRadio.net. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another edition of Catholic Connection.